Chapter Four of Triplanetary, First in the Lensman Series by E. E. Doc Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Phil Chenevere. Nineteen eighteen. Sobbing furiously, Captain Ralph Kinnison wrenched at his stick. With half of his control surfaces shot away, the crate was hellishly loggy. He could step out, of course, the while saluting the victorious Jerry's. But he wasn't on fire, yet, and hadn't been hit, yet. He ducked and flinched sidewise as another burst of bullets stitched another seam along his riddled fuselage, and wanged against his dead engine. A fire? Not yet. Good. Maybe he could land this heap after all. Slowly, oh, so sluggishly, the spot began to level off toward the edge of the wheat field and that friendly inviting ditch. If the Krauts didn't get him with their next pass, he heard a chattering beneath him. Brownings, by God! And the expected burst did not come. He knew that he had been just about over the front when they conked his engine. It was a toss-up whether he would come down in enemy territory or not. But now, for the first time in ages, it seemed, there were machine-guns going that were not aimed at him. His landing-gear swished against stubble, and he fought with all his strength of body and will to keep the spod's tail down. He almost succeeded. His speed was almost spent when he began to nose over. He leaped then, and as he struck ground he curled up and rolled. He had been a motorcycle racer for years, feeling as he did so a wash of heat. A tracer had found his gas tank at last. Bullets were thudding into the ground. One shrieked past his head as, stooping over, folded into the smallest possible target, he galloped awkwardly toward the ditch. The Brownings still yammered, filling the sky with cupro-nickled lead, and while Kinnison was flinging himself full length into the protecting water and mud, he heard a tremendous crash. One of those Huns had been too intent on murder, had stayed a few seconds too long, had come a few meters too close. The clamor of the guns stopped abruptly. We got one! We got one! A yell of exultation. Stay down! Keep low, you boneheads! roared a voice of authority, quite evidently a sergeant's. Wanna get your block shot off? Take down them guns. We gotta get the hell out of here. Hey, you flyer, are you okay, or wounded, or maybe dead?" Kinnison spat out mud until he could talk. "'Okay,' he shouted, and started to lift an eye above the low bank. He stopped, however, as whistling metal, sheeting in from the north, told him that such action would be decidedly unsafe. "'But I ain't leaving this ditch right now. Sounds mighty hot out there.' "'You said it, brother.' It's hotter than the hinges of hell uh, for behind that ridge over there. But uh, ooze down that ditch a piece uh, around the first bend. It's pretty well in the clear there, and besides, you'll find a ledge of rocks running straight across the flat. Cross over there and climb the hill. Join us by that dead snag up there. We got to get out of here. That sausage over there must have seen this shinding, and they'll blow this whole damn area off the map. Snap it up. And you, you gold bricks, get the lead out of your pants. Kinnison followed directions. He found the ledge and emerged, scraping thick and sticky mud from his uniform. He crawled across the little plain, 
An occasional bullet whined through the air far above him, but, as the sergeant had said, this bit of terrain was in the clear. He climbed the hill, approaching the gaunt, bare tree-trunk. He heard men moving, and cautiously announced himself. "'Okay, fella,' came the sergeant's deep bass. "'Yeah, it's us. Shake a leg.' "'That's easy,' Kinnison laughed for the first time that day. "'I'm shaking already, like a hula-hula dances impinage. What outfit is this, and where are we?' Baroom! The earth trembled, the air vibrated. Below and to the north, almost exactly where the machine-guns had been, an awe-inspiring cloud billowed majestically into the air, a cloud composed of smoke, vapor, pulverized earth, chunks of rock, and debris of what had been trees. Nor was it alone. Crack! Bang! Tweet! Boom! Wham! Shells of all calibers, high explosive and gas, came down in droves. The landscape disappeared. The little company of Americans, in complete silence and with one mind, devoted themselves to accumulating distance. Finally, when they had to stop for breath, Section B, attached to the 76th Field Artillery, the sergeant answered the question as though it had just been asked. As to where we are, somewhere between Berlin and Paris is about all I can tell you. We got hell knocked out of us yesterday, and have been running around lost ever since. They shot off a rally signal on top of this here hill, though, and we was just going to shove off when we seen the crouch chasing you. Thanks. I'd better rally with you, I guess. Find out where we are and what's the chance of getting back to my own outfit. Damn slim, I'd say. Boshes are all around us here, thicker than fleas on a dog. They approached the summit, were challenged, were accepted. They saw a gray-haired man, an old man for such a location, seated calmly upon a rock smoking a cigarette. His smartly tailored uniform, which fitted perfectly his not-so-slender figure, was muddy and tattered. One leg of his breeches was torn half away, revealing a blood-soaked bandage. Although he was very evidently an officer, no insignia was visible. As Kinnison and the gunners approached, a first lieutenant, practically spick and span, spoke to the man on the rock. First thing to do is to settle the matter of rank,' he announced crisply. "'I'm Lieutenant Randolph of—' "'Rank, eh?' The seated one grinned and spat out the butt of his cigarette. But then it was important to me, too, when I was the first lieutenant, about the time that you were born. Slayton, Major General. Oh, excuse me, sir. Skip it. How many men you got, and what are they? Seven, sir. We brought in a wire from infant— A wire? Hell and damnation! Why haven't you got it with you, then? Get it. The crestfallen officer disappeared. The general turned to Kennison and the sergeant. Have you got any ammunition, sergeant? Yes, sir. About thirty belts. Thank God. We can use it. And you. And for you, Captain, I don't know. The wire came up. The general seized the instrument and cranked. Get me Spearmint. Spearmint. Spearmint? Slayton. Give me Weatherby. This is Slayton. Yes, but— No, but I want— Hell and damnation, Weatherby. Shut up and let me talk. Don't you know that this wire is apt to be cut any second? We're on top of Hill 497. That's right. About 200 men, maybe three. 
Composite, somebody, apparently, from half the outfits in France. Too fast and too far. Both flanks wide open. Cut off. Hello? Hello? Hello! He dropped the instrument and turned to Kinnison. You want to go back, Captain? And I need a runner. Bad. Want to try to get through? Yes, sir. First phone you come to, get Spearmint, General Weatherby. Tell him Slayton says that we're cut off, but the Germans aren't in much force nor in good position, and for God's sake to get some air and tanks in here, to keep them from consolidating. Just a minute, Sergeant, what's your name? He studied the burly Nuncom minutely. Well, sir, what would you say ought to be done with the machine guns? Cover that ravine there first, then set up the inflate if they try to come up over there. Then if I could find any more guns, I'd— Enough, Second Lieutenant Wells, from now on. GHQ will confirm. Take charge of all the guns we have. Report when you have made disposition. Now, Kinnison, listen. I can probably hold out until tonight. The enemy doesn't know yet that we're here, but we are due for some action pretty quick now, and when they locate us, if there aren't too many of their own units here, too, they'll flatten this hill like a table. So tell Weatherby to throw a column in here as soon as it gets dark, and to advance eight and sixty so as to consolidate this whole area. Got it? Yes, sir. Got a compass? Yes, sir. Pick up a tin hat and get going. A hair north of due west, about a kilometer and a half. Keep cover, because the going will be tough. Uh, then you'll come to a road. It's a mess, but it's ours. Or was, at last accounts. So the worst of it will be over. On that road, which goes southwest about two kilometers further, you'll find a post. You'll know it by the motorcycles and such. Phone from there. Luck. Bullets began to whine, and the general dropped to the ground and crawled towards a coppice, bellowing orders as he went. Kinnison crawled, too, straight west, availing himself of all possible cover, until he encountered a sergeant-major reclining against the south side of a great tree. Cigarette, buddy? That white demanded. Sure, take the pack. I've got another that'll last me, maybe more, but what the hell goes on here? Who ever heard of a major general getting far enough up front to get shot in the leg? And he talks as though he were figuring on kicking the whole German army. Is the old bird nuts or what? Not so you would notice it. Did you ever hear of old hell and damnation Slayton? You will, buddy, you will. If Persian doesn't give him three stars after this, he's crazier than hell. He ain't supposed to be on combat at all. He's from GHQ and can make or break anybody in the AEF, out here on a look-see trip, and couldn't get back. But you got to hand it to him. He's getting things organized in great shape. I came in with him. I'm about all that's left of them that did, just waiting for this breeze to die down. But it's getting worse. We'd better duck. Over there. Bullets whistled and stormed, breaking more twigs and branches from the already shattered, practically denuded trees. The two slid precipitately into the indicated shell-hole, into stinking mud. Wells's guns burst into action. "'Damn, I hated to do this,' the sergeant grumbled. "'On account of, I just got half dry. "'Wise me up,' Kinnison directed. "'The more I know about things, the more apt I am to get through. "'This is what is left of two battalions and a lot of casuals. "'They made objective.' But it turns out the outfits on their right and left couldn't. 
leaving their flanks right out in the open air. Orders came in by Blinker to rectify the line by falling back, but by then it couldn't be done, under observation. Kinnison nodded. He knew what a barrage would have done to a force trying to cross such an open ground in daylight. One man could probably make it, though, if he was careful and kept his eyes wide open, the sergeant major continued. But you ain't got no binoculars, have you? No. Get a pair easy enough. You saw them boots without any hobnails in them, sticking out from under some blankets? Yes, I get you. Kinnison knew that combat officers did not wear hobnails, and usually carried binoculars. How come so many at once? Just about all the officers they got this far. Conniving, my guess, is behind old Slayton's back. Anyway, a Kraut aviator spots him and dives. Our machine guns got him, but not until after he heaved a bomb. Dead center. Christ, what a mess! But there's six, seven good glasses in there. I'd grab one myself, but the general would see it. He can see right through the lid of a mess kit. Well, the boys have shut those krauts up, so I'll hunt the old man up and tell him what I find out. Damn this mud! Kinnison emerged sinuously and snaked his way to a row of blanket-covered forms. He lifted a blanket and gasped, then vomited up everything it seemed that he had eaten for days. But he had to have the binoculars. He got them. Then, still retching, white and shaken, he crept westward, availing himself of every possible item of cover. For some time, from a point somewhere north of his route, a machine-gun had been intermittently at work. It was close, but the very loudness of its noise, confused as it was by resounding echoes, made it impossible to locate at all exactly the weapon's position. Kinnison crept forward inchwise, scanning every foot of visible terrain through his powerful glass. He knew by the sound that it was German. More, since what he did not know about machine-guns could have been printed in big poster-type upon the back of his hand, he knew that it was a Maxim Model 1907, a mean, mean gun. He deduced that it was doing plenty of damage to his fellows back on the hill, and that they had not been able to do much of anything about it. And it was beautifully hidden. Even he, close as he must be, couldn't see it. But, damn it, there had to be a— Minute after minute, unmoving save for the traverse of his binoculars, he searched, and finally he found a tiny plume, the veriest wisp of vapor, rising from the surface of the brook, steam, steam from the cooling jacket of that Maxim 1907, and there was the tube. Cautiously, he moved around until he could trace that tube to its business end, the carefully hidden emplacement. There it was. He couldn't maintain his westward course without them spotting him, nor could he go around far enough. And besides that, there would be at least a patrol, if it hadn't gone up the hill already, and there were grenades available right close. He crept up to one of the gruesome objects he had been avoiding, and when he crept away he half-carried, half-dragged three grenades in a canvas bag. He wormed his way to a certain boulder. He straightened up, pulled three pins, swung his arm three times. 
Bang! Bam! Pow! The camouflage disappeared. So did the shrubbery for yards around. Kinnison had ducked behind the rock, but he ducked still deeper as a chunk of something, its force pretty well spent, clanged against his steel helmet. Another object thudded beside him. A leg, gray-clad and wearing a heavy field boot. Kinnison wanted to be sick again, but he had neither the time nor the contents. And damn, what lousy throwing! He had never been any good at baseball, but he supposed that he could hit a thing as big as that gun pit. But not one of his grenades had gone in. The crew would probably be dead from concussion, if nothing else. But the gun probably wasn't even hurt. He would have to go over there and cripple it himself. He went. Not exactly boldly. Forty-five in hand. The Germans looked dead. One of them sprawled on the parapet right in his way. He gave the body a shove, watched it roll down the slope. As it rolled, however, it came to life and yelled, and at that yell there occurred a thing at which young Kinnison's hair stood straight up inside his iron helmet. On the gray of the blasted hillside, hitherto unseen gray forms moved, moved toward their howling comrade. And Kinnison, blessing for the first time in his life his inept throwing arm, hoped fervently that the maxim was still in good working order. A few seconds of inspection showed him that it was. The gun had practically a full belt, and there was plenty more. He placed a box. He would have no number two to help him here. Took hold of the grips, shoved off the safety, and squeezed the trip. The gun roared. What a gorgeous, what a heavenly racket that Maxim made! He traversed until he could see where the bullets were striking, then swung the stream of metal to and fro. One belt and the Germans were completely disorganized. Two belts, and he could see no signs of life. He pulled the Maxim's block and threw it away. Shot the water jacket full of holes. That gun was done. Nor had he increased his own hazard. Unless more Germans came very soon, nobody would ever know who had done what or to whom. He slithered away, resumed earnestly his westward course, going as fast as sometimes a trifle faster than caution would permit. But there were no more alarms. He crossed the dangerously open ground, sulked rapidly through the frightfully shattered wood. He reached the road, strode along it around the first bend, and stopped appalled. He had heard of such things, but he had never seen one, and mere description that always been and always will be completely inadequate. Now he was walking right into it. The thing he was to see in nightmare for all the rest of his ninety-six years of life. Actually, there was very little to see. The road ended abruptly. What had been a road, what had been wheat fields and farms, what had been woods, were practically indistinguishable from one another, were fantastically and impossibly the same. The entire area had been churned. Worse. It was as though the ground and its every surface object had been run through a gargantuan mill and spewed abroad. Splinters of wood, riven chunks of metal, a few scraps of bloody flesh. 
Kinnison screamed then and ran, ran back and around that blasted acreage. As he ran, his mind built up pictures, pictures which became only the more vivid because of his frantic efforts to wipe them out. That road, the night before, had been one of the world's most heavily traveled highways. Motorcycles, trucks, bicycles, ambulances, kitchens, staff cars, and other automobiles. Guns, from seventy-fives up to the big boys, whose tremendous weight drove their wide caterpillar treads inches deep into solid ground. Horses, mules, and people, especially people like himself. Solid columns of men marching as fast as they could step. There weren't trucks enough to haul them all. That road had been crowded, jammed, like State and Madison at noon, only more so. Overjammed, with all the personnel, all the instrumentation and incidentalia, all the weaponry of war. And upon that teeming, seething highway there had descended a rain of steel-encased high explosive. Possibly some gas, but probably not. The German high command had given orders to pulverize that particular area at that particular time, and hundreds or perhaps thousands of German guns, in a micrometrically synchronized symphony of firepower, had pulverized it. Just that, literally, precisely. No road remained. No farm, no field, no building, no tree or shrub. The bits of flesh might have come from horse, or man, or mule. Few indeed were the scraps of metal which retained enough of their original shape to show what they had once been. Kinnison ran, or staggered, around that obscene blot and struggled back to the road. It was shell-pocked, but passable. He hoped that the shell-holes would decrease in number as he went along, but they did not. The enemy had put this whole road out of service, and that form, the P.C., ought to be around the next bend. It was, but it was no longer a post of command. Either by directed fire, star-shell illumination, or by uncannily accurate chart-work, they had put some heavy shells exactly where they would do the most damage. The buildings were gone. The cellar in which the P.C. had been was now a gaping crater. Parts of motorcycles and of staff cars littered the ground. Stark tree trunks, all bare of leaves, some riven of all except the largest branches, a few stripped even of bark, stood gauntly. In a crotch of one, Kinnison saw with rising horror, hung the limp and shattered naked torso of a man, blown completely out of his clothes. Shells were, had been right along, coming over occasionally. Big ones, but high, headed for targets well to the west. Nothing close enough to worry about. Two ambulances, a couple of hundred meters apart, were coming, working their way along the road between the holes. The first one slowed, stopped. Seen anybody? Look out! Duck! Kinnison had already heard that unmistakable, unforgettable screech, was already diving headlong into the nearest hole. There was a crash as though the world were falling apart. Something smote him, seemed to drive him bodily into the ground. His light went out. When he recovered consciousness, he was lying upon a stretcher. Two men were bending over him. "'What hit me?' he gasped. "'Am I—' 
He stopped. He was afraid to ask, afraid even to try to move, lest he should find that he didn't have any arms or legs. A wheel and maybe some of the axle of the other ambulance is all, one of the men assured him. Nothing much. You're practically as good as ever. Shoulder and arm bunged up a little, and something, maybe shrapnel, though, poked you in the guts. But we've got you all fixed up, so take it easy and— What we want to know is, his partner interrupted, is there anybody else alive up here? Uh-uh, Kinnison shook his head. Okay, just wanted to be sure. Lots of business back there, and it won't do any harm to have a doctor look at you. Get me to a phone, as fast as you can, Kinnison directed, in a voice which he thought was strong and full of authority, but which, in fact, was neither. I've got an important message for General Weatherby, at Spearmint. Better tell us what it is, hadn't you? The ambulance was now jolting along what had been the road. They've got phones at the hospital where we're going, but you might faint or something before we get there. Kinnison told, but fought to retain what consciousness he had. Throughout that long, rough ride he fought. He won. He himself spoke to General Weatherby, the doctors knowing him to be a captain of aviation, and realizing that his message should go direct, helped him to telephone. He himself received the general's sizzlingly sulfurous assurance that relief would be sent, and that that quadruply qualified line would be rectified that night. Then someone jabbed him with a needle, and he lapsed into a dizzy, fuzzy coma from which he did not emerge completely for weeks. He had lucid intervals at times, but he did not, at the time or ever, know surely what was real and what was fantasy. There were doctors, 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 operations, operations, operations. There were hospital tents, into which quiet men were carried, from which still quieter men were removed. There was a larger hospital built of wood. There was a machine that buzzed and white-clad men who studied films and papers. There were scraps of conversation. Belly wounds are bad, Kinnison thought. He was never sure that he heard one of them say. And such contusions and multiple and compound fractures as those don't help a bit. Prognosis unfavorable, distinctly so. But we'll soon see what we can do. Interesting case. Fascinating. What would you do, doctor, if you were doing it? I'd let it alone, a younger, stronger voice declared fervently. Multiple perforations? Infection? Extravasation? Edema? Uh-uh. I'm watching, doctor, and learning. Another interlude, and another, another, and others, until, finally, orders were given that Kennison did not hear at all. Adrenaline! Massage! Massage the hell out of him! Kinnison again came to, partially to, rather, anguished in every fiber of his being. Somebody was sticking barbed arrows into every square inch of his skin. Somebody else was pounding and mauling him all over, taking particular pains to pummel and to wrench at all the places where he hurt the worst. He yelled at the top of his voice, yelled and swore bitterly, Quit it! being the expurgated gist of his luridly profane protests. He did not make nearly as much noise as he supposed, but he made enough. "'Thank God!' Kinnison heard a lighter, softer voice. 
Surprised, he stopped swearing and tried to stare. He couldn't see very well, either, but he was pretty sure that there was a middle-aged woman there. There was, and her eyes were not dry. He is going to live after all. As the days passed, he began really to sleep, naturally and deeply. He grew hungrier and hungrier, and they would not give him enough to eat. He was by turns sullen, angry, and morose. In short, he was convalescent. For Captain Ralph K. Kennison, the war was over. End of chapter 4